This is Radical Love Life, an ongoing series of podcasts and special events where we explore faith outside the boxes. Hosted by Mark Dilcom and Kelly Wilson. Hey, Radical Love Live listeners, it's Mark. How you doing? Welcome to another episode. And uh, Kelly will be joining us shortly, so I'm going to start up uh, here by myself, uh, uh, provided uh, I don't get myself into too much trouble. I'll try not to. So with that said, we have an awesome guest uh, with us today, and that is uh, Colby Martin. Hey, Colby. Hey, am, am I the awesome guest, or are we waiting for him to log on? No, later? you are wait. the awesome guest, my friend. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So when you run it solo, because Kelly is doing whatever Kelly's doing, do you get a higher cut of the revenue at the end of the month? Like, <laughs> you get like 60% right now? It's great. He, well, it, it's a little bit more than that, but let, <laughs> hopefully he won't ever hear this part. Okay. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> nah, we're partners in crime. If anything else, Colby, um, you know, just as a backstory, even for the listeners here, um, when uh, we created this back in late 2019 and uh, started our first season in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, Kelly and I have been collaborators, co-creators, co-hosts and everything else. So, you know, it um, he is as much uh, a part of this uh, as all of us. And, and, and it's great. It's fun to do this uh, by myself with you. But, uh, you know, he's uh, he, he's with us in spirit. That's for sure. I love it. Yeah, indeed. So, Colby, um, Again, it's great to have you on. You have a wealth experience and wisdom that you're bringing into the conversation here. But uh, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey, uh, starting out as a kid, and kind of fill in the the framework for our listeners about um, what you've been up to. Sure. Um, should I just start when I was five years old? How's that sound? Yeah, I think, I think I was five. I might've been six. I don't know. One of the things about childhood trauma is you just don't remember things very well. So I've got very few memories prior to the age of like eight or nine. Um, no, we're good. Yeah, it's real. It's real. Thank it's you real. for sharing that right there. I, yeah. Sorry folks, but I, I don't remember a lot of my childhood because of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I was so. just being awesome. And I just, I would love to know what distinguishes between awesome and freaking awesome. Tell me what that gap is. I will answer that for you, my friend. Awesome is when I don't feel pure joy. Like there's a little, little dip in, you know, those, those, those dark moments that I have these days. Okay. Okay. The freaking awesome is when I'm on top of, and I just feel the joy and the oneness of everything that goes on in my life. And it's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm zinging along. That's I, freaking awesome. I love not only that you had an answer for that, but I love what your answer is. So thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, Colby. So the question that you were replying to was when I uh, asked you to pause for a second is you had mentioned that you have no recollection of your childhood and you were just about to start sharing a little bit more about that, actually. Yeah. So where I was going was I was going to tell you the the story of when I um, asked God into my heart as a good as a good Baptist child did. And I. I might've been five, might've been six. doesn't really matter. The point is, is I was a small child who grew up in a, uh, a strong Baptist environment. My dad comes from a long line of Baptists and Mennonites. My mom was actually a first generation Christian. She came to the church in high school as a, as a respite from her family situation. And that's where her and my dad met. And so, you know, I grew up going to church multiple times a week. It was just part of the, the life and the rhythm. And I grew up in Oregon, uh, by the way, and so at some point along the way, I, I picked up the message that 
the thing to do as a, as a human is to invite Jesus into your heart, uh, to confess that you are, you are a sinner, uh, and to state that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that you invite him into your heart. And then I guess at that point, the, the algorithm clicks in and you now are, your name's written in the, the book of life and you get certainty of heaven when you die as opposed to hell, which what five-year-old wouldn't want to do that? I mean, not only do you get to avoid burning forever, which sounds like something any five-year-old would opt to not experience, um, but you also get the satisfaction of making your parents happy, right? Because yeah, they feel like, oh yeah, we've done our parental duty to get our child saved. Uh, but then you also you can even scale that up. You make your religious community happy, like a celebration that happens when people, you know, uh, become a Christian or become born again, I guess is the language that would have been popular at that time. And so I remember that happening. Um, and again, I said this a minute ago, but my memory on this is, as I'm sure pieced together from various stories and I don't know how super reliable it is, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's my memory of the narrative. And my memory was I was on the top bunk of the bunk bed uh, and my dad had just tucked me in and as he walked down the hallway I sort of hollered hollered after him and he, and he and he came back in and I'm sure he was just thinking I needed another drink of water or was delaying bedtime or like adjust the fan because we always slept with fans on in our house and to this day I kind of need fans and white noise uh, to fall asleep uh, but no I asked him or I said dad I'm ready to invite Jesus into my heart and so he led me through the like what the Baptist world called the sinner's prayer, which just think about that for a minute. Think about what we're asking our young kids to do in those situations. We're asking them to take for themselves an identity of being a fallen sinner, which, you know, if you want to talk about original sin and you want to get into that, that's fine. We can, I, I would love to discuss that with you, but just for a moment, set aside the truthiness of that doctrinal statement and just think about what we're asking small children to do, to take upon themselves this concept that I am so bad that there's so much wrong with me that the God who created everything literally cannot stand me, can't even be in the same room with me metaphorically. And then when I die, literally, as the story goes, can't even be anywhere close to me because I'm so bad. I'm so broken. We're asking small children to take that upon. Like think that the psychological damage is, um, I mean, we're, we're seeing the effects of that over and over and over and over again. It's a, it's a heavy thing to ask our, our children, it's a heavy thing to ask adults to take on themselves, but to put that upon children is just, um, and then the way that the brain sort of receives that as a kid, you know, you activate then all the, the dopamine hits and you get all excited because you have just, stamped your ticket to heaven. And like I said, a minute ago, you made your family happy. You made your church happy. So the trade-off of like feeling good about feeling bad, that's kind of weird. <laughs> feel, feel bad enough that, as a sinner so that then you can feel good as being saved. Wow. So Colby, you were how old? Five? I, I, five or six, I would imagine is about the time. So how that's pretty amazing as a kindergartner, first grader that you are somewhere in your mind, um, you had heard and experienced enough that you knew that you wanted to, uh, bring Jesus into your heart. And then that process was going to take place. Um, 
that's what happened to me um in a not so directly in the in your story and telling but and it's i'm the uh the uh, I am the effect of learning that I was broken and defective in God's eyes because I wasn't baptized and because I was already starting to figure out that I was gay. So I was a few years older, but it's to your point, it's, it's, that's a very traumatizing experience, uh, you know, on how that happens. So, all right. So you bring Jesus into your heart and you proceed forward. So I take it you stayed with the uh, Baptist faith growing up. Yeah. Stayed with the Baptist faith. Um, Fast forward five years or so, my parents got a divorce finally after a messy couple years of separation and more trauma. Uh, And my mom attempted to keep my two brothers and I in the Baptist world at the church we were going to, but Baptist, and this is especially true back in the the 90s, you know, they didn't know what to do with divorced people. Like divorce was at that time, probably more heinous of a sin than even homosexuality, just because there wasn't. Like there wasn't a cultural conversation like we have today. So like divorce was the worst. So the fact that my mom was a now divorcee with kids uh, and I'm sure the church did as good as they can, but my mom ultimately didn't feel like we belonged there anymore. And so we found a different generic evangelical church to go to. And that was where I continued to go through, through high school. But for me at that point, going to church was just kind of a thing that we did. It didn't, I wasn't super tuned into it, but then, um, my senior year of high school, the summer going into that is really when I had at that time, what I would have called a profound calling from God to, to give my life to ministry, right? Those, that's how I would have framed it back then. And even today, I don't even know how to talk about it today. I just know that at that time, that was what it felt like. I was at a, I was at a trip down in Southern California with my youth group. We were, they were training high schoolers how to do uh, street witnessing. So they'd send us out into the, Huntington beach two by two. Cause I, that's biblical. Right. And we would just strike up conversations with strangers and, and figure out how to Jesus juke the conversation to, to basically ask them if you were to die right now, do you know where you would go? Like, you know, just casual things that you ask people at Starbucks uh, and then, you know, figure out how to use all of our apologetics training to convince them that they too are a sinner and are destined for hell. But good news, if you just say this prayer with me, then you'll be saved. And I remember coming back, Mark, from that first day of doing that um, when I was 17 years old. And I get back to the room I was staying at and I just fell on my bed and just started weeping, which was not something I was accustomed to. Like now as a 41 year old man, you know, post psychedelic therapy, post divorce, I cry a lot and I'm fine with it. And I love it. Um, but prior, you know, but prior to that, I didn't cry much. And we could probably attribute that to the, some of the aforementioned childhood trauma where the emotions were like, Nope, we're not going to feel <laughs> no, um, but I'm just on my bed, just weeping. And in that moment, I felt as though God was inviting me to one of two paths. I could either stay on the path that I was on, which was uh, Christian in name only, um, which is fine, but it was just kind of life was like any teenager, life was all about me. And what I felt was I felt a super disconnect. I felt, I felt like a fraud when I was out on the beach talking to people about Jesus. I was telling people about a thing that I really didn't have an experience for myself. Didn't really, didn't really have a relationship with God in that way. I just knew the answers to say. And so I'm feeling like a fraud, crying on my bed, feeling God saying, Hey bud, you can keep doing what you're doing. It's fine. Like, well, I probably at that time I wouldn't have thought God said it was fine, but, or the other path, God's like, or 
this can be a turning point in your life and you can start to live, you know, fully and wholly for, for me and for the kingdom, whatever. I don't know what words I would use back then. Uh, and that was the path I chose. I'm like, all right, this is it. I'm, I am throwing all my chips on this table. And that week is one of the nights during the, the, the large gatherings is when I felt this strong calling to go into ministry, which I've reflected about in, in the years past. Um, and I think a lot of that was sort of just cultural conditioning because when you were someone in my position who had a particular charm, a particular social standing, a certain kind of intellectual, like, it just seems like, well, that's what you do is you become a pastor, right? At the time I felt it was a calling, but looking back, it was more like, no, this was just the natural next step for someone in my, I'm a straight white male who can talk to people. So you, that's what you do is you become a pastor. So now I kind of demystify it a little bit with some more just psychological, like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. But at the time I felt, no, God is inviting me. God's calling me to be a pastor. So I changed my plans to be a graphic designer in college, um, enrolled into a, a Christian college, got my degree in pastoral ministry and, and away I went, I was ready to, I was ready to, to win at being an evangelical pastor. I couldn't wait. Wow. 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 So how many years did you do this? Uh, how many years did yeah, I be a pastor in a traditional sense, the evangelical? Oh um, yeah. It didn't last long. Here's oh, okay. <laughs> Here's the thing about college <laughs> and post-college life. Once you like be hit the real world, yeah, a lot of those evangelical sensibilities they don't map on very well to reality. They just they don't. Uh, you, you start to realize pretty quickly that the world is actually not black and white. That the sort of the, the dualistic right wrong in out us them that framework is not tenable in this world. It's not. It's not, uh, but so, but the majority of people live in that. And you learned this in college early on? No, I learned it shortly after college when I started wow. reading books that were not, yeah. would not have been approved by my Baptist professor. <laughs> um, exactly, to, because I, you know, I'm not a Southern Baptist or Baptist myself, but it's kind of binary, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly those yeah. words that you just used. You know, it's good or bad, right or wrong, left, right, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. Like there's no, there's not a lot of room for gray and uh, subjectivity. It's, it's like, no, no, we live in objectivity. <laughs> yeah. You're either saved or you're not. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the charitable part of me says, and it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense that that is their worldview. And here's the reason why. If you're not you personally, but if, if an individual's primary assumption is that the God of the universe, the most important thing to God, and somewhere along the way, Christianity, a lot of Christianity started to think this way, that the most important thing to God is what humans believe. Think about that for a minute. We, 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 have, we have developed a religion around the idea that the God who created everything cares most about what homo sapiens or the ideas that we have in our brain. And so when that's your fundamental starting point is that the thing God cares about most is what you believe, what you think, then you, uh, before I say my next sentence, what's the show's policy on swearing? <laughs> uh, clean? I keep it relatively clean. Like if there's one or two no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> words, we're good, but no, no, yeah. that's fine. Um, so if you, if you think that God cares most about what you think, then you darn well better f figure out what the right answer is and then lock that sucker down. 
That is, that is the move. Of course it is. Of course it is. If you think that God cares most about what we believe, figure out what the right answer is, lock it down and don't change it. Now, of course, I have all kinds of issues with this idea that God cares most about what people think. I mean, think of all the variables that make that utterly improbable and impractical, depending upon what time in history you were born, what part of the world you were born, what sort of mental uh, abilities or, or lack thereof or, or hindrances that you might have to even kind to think that God care, like I've been, I'm a parent. I've been a parent for 19 years. I got four kids. Never once, Mark, have I ever thought to myself, you know what's most important to me about being a father to these kids? Is I, it matters most to me that they know exactly everything there is to know about me and they get it right. <laughs> like they, they need to know what my job is. They need to know what my fundamental characteristics are. That's what's, no, no, it's not. That is not, that is so far down the list on the things that I care about as a parent. Um, so I can, I can sympathize with the, to go back to the binary world of a lot of Christians, specifically evangelical Christians, I can sympathize with this, get the right answers. It's all about belief and lock it down. Because if you think you're standing with the divine is dependent upon ideas in your head, then yeah, that is going to be the world that you live in. And it's going to be really hard to shake you from that because any, any toying around or messing around with beliefs now in your, in your worldview puts you at risk of being on the outside of God's goodwill. And that's terrifying. That is terrifying. And you bring up a good point. And it's, God, I just love you sharing your story. And I, um, so first thing is I think we are soulmates at some level because the things you just shared are, is the stuff that I write about, which, you know, fits into what my, my worldview is that we're all uh, living a shared experience and we're all connected in oneness. So I'm not shocked that you said, but it's, it's great to hear that because those are the same things I think. And like, oh, yeah, great. At least I know there's one other person on this planet in this uh, reality that thinks the way I do. But uh, God love you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you are absolutely right, though, about the terrifying elements of that, because, you know, even as adults, regardless of when somebody is introduced to this and then they embrace this. Like you, you're making a decision about your one uh, self-worth based on what somebody else believes that our creator, our source, whatever you want to call it, has deemed that we need to fit into that narrative. And if we don't, then we're automatically like defective and there's all these horrible things are going to happen. And hello, Kelly. Hi there. I just probably showed up out of nowhere. You did. You got a Kelly. This is fantastic. Yeah. This is oh, magic. I'm no longer in the car. So, folks, uh, Kelly is uh, with us live and in person in studio. So that's right. The devil was trying to keep me from getting here oh, with that traffic but... on the Garden State Parkway, but uh, <laughs> but not today, Satan. Not that's today. Right. Jesus made a way where there was no way. I'll be honest. Be if, right if that was the devil's Parkway. attempt at keeping you, I just feel like that was pretty weak. That's the best you could do, Satan. <laughs> like a like a sinkhole. I could think of a sinkhole could be really helpful. I don't know if you have tornadoes out in that part of the world. Chunks of asphalt. Oh, yeah. Hurricanes. Dunkin' Donuts coffee that you drink maybe could have like really jacked with your internal system and caused you to like need to you know pull off in the side. I just think there's so That's many right. other ways. I'd be calling from the rest stop. Yeah. <laughs> so. So that was weak, Satan. That was weak. Uh, yeah. No offense. Yeah. Next, next time, weak. Satan. Do better. Do better, Satan. Do anyway, better. I have been listening to the, the conversation while I was on my way, and there's a lot of parallels. Um, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene in mm-hmm. South Bend, Indiana, and had a you know, very similar 
sort of you know like the romans road like everyone has sinned everyone um, is on yeah. you know on there do you know the romans road i There's do like, because of you my dear friend yeah, those certain you know catchphrases through mm -hmm. romans that you can you can pick the out the wages of, of sin is death all have sinned right. and fallen short of the glory of God. That's right. No one's <laughs> righteous, not one. I'm not laughing because I'm not like if there's anybody that listens to this episode and is like, oh my God, he just laughed at a biblical uh, passage. No, I did not laugh at it that way. But it's in keeping with the conversation here, it is it is it is amazing though that which we are going to talk about in this conversation, how we will extract out all those points that make us uh, a worldview fit a particular narrative to fit, you know, whatever the underlying reason is, you know, power, patriarchy, both some more, maybe money, whatever the case may be. But, um, so, all right. So you, let's go back to you, uh, started reading non-Baptist kind of books and got yourself into trouble. You started to realize there's non-binary in this world. Pick it up from there. What else was going on yeah. with you? So, so what those books did early on um shortly after college was they they gave me permission a couple things they gave me permission to ask questions yeah. of, of the of the faith which again to go back to what we were saying a minute ago yeah. if your fundamental starting point is to believe the right things and then lock it down questions yeah. become a kind of threat yeah. and it, it, you know churches now would say well we, we're not afraid of questions okay you're you're kind of telling the truth you're not afraid of questions as long as they lead to the the answers that they've always led to really is what it is. <laughs> right. Right. And, and there's some very pat answers that you'll find yeah. to, you know, questions of theodicy yeah. and other things. It's like, well, you know, people have to learn from their suffering, you know, or, you know, these little like Hallmark card captions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I got permission to ask questions and I, and I, and I, and my eyes widened to, the reality that the that the Christian faith from the beginning has been this wide, diverse collection of ways to express and practice Christianity, which in the Baptist world, there wasn't really room for it. It was kind of this unspoken assumption that there's an unbroken chain from like Jesus to Peter to Paul to the Baptist. <laughs> like it was just <laughs> everything else is some, some sort of like uh, like a failure to abide by the truth and the Baptist had Calvin picked it up sure. somewhere and <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it turns out like there's all from the beginning. I mean, there's all Bart Ehrman talks about it as, as the many Christianities like in the uh, first couple centuries, but even beyond that, yes. you've, you've yes, got, yes. you know, you've got the, the, the Orthodox church, you've got Catholicism, which in my yeah. Baptist world, in my, one of my Baptist classes was world religions and cults. <laughs> and, and Catholicism like fit as a cult in that frame frame view. Like this is how just bonkers it is. The, wow. the church that was the Christian church for 1500 years, they weren't the Catholic church. They were just the church. Cause that's all. Right. That's the only show just, in town. Yeah, the only show in town. Right. The only show in town. Um, so yeah, my mind just, it expanded to, to the reality that, that the church has always been diverse and has always asked questions and, and gotten slightly different answers. And that's not something to be afraid. There's something to be embraced really, in my opinion. Um, and that slowly led me to an audit of a lot of my evangelical assumptions about what was true within the context of Christianity. And, and that happened again, probably a year and a half or two out of college. And then I'm, Moved to Arizona and got a job at a, a large evangelical church there, 
And over the course of my five-year uh, tenure there was really when a lot of people use the term deconstruction now. That wasn't a term back then. And it's not right. even one that I really use for myself. Um, but when I say that, I think people understand what I mean, the shorthand mm -hmm. for that. But really, yep. it was about auditing all these different beliefs. And, and I think of it as a, a Jenga tower. And each block, I'm like pulling out of the middle of it. You know, maybe this is the doctrine of eternal conscious torment you know of hell and i'm i'm exploring it i'm asking questions of it you know the 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 jewish tradition talks about reading scripture and turning it like a gem in your hand and seeing all the ways that the light reflects off it and getting a bunch of different perspectives and so i'm doing this with all these different you know the the inerrancy of scripture um the 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 historical jesus the what is it what is it, the kingdom of god and i'm auditing all these beliefs and just like jenga sometimes you end up holding on to the piece you just turn it a little bit differently. You add it to your tower. You're like, I'm going to keep this one, but it's different than it was before. <laughs> like it's more informed now. Um, and I'm holding it less tightly because good gravy. I mean, when, when your assumption is that you have to believe the right things and hold it with certainty, you hold those suckers tightly. But when you can relax and realize what if the thing that's most important to God is not the ideas in our head. Now you can hold these more loosely. Like You're not as anxious about the fact that you might be quote wrong or you just it might not be a belief you want to hold anymore. And so some of the beliefs I would hold on to, but differently. And then some of the beliefs I would just throw away. Like, you know what? This is not serving me anymore. This does not feel consistent with who I believe Jesus was and what the mission of his uh, ministry was. And then others I would maybe just sort of set over on the shelf and be like, I don't know what to do with this one. I'm not going to throw it away yet. But I also can't really hold on to it in good conscience. So I'm just going to set it over here. Maybe one day I'll come back to that. And that was my, for, you know, for the next four years as I was at this church in Arizona, that was, and I was doing it all, by the way, under the radar. <laughs> these were not, <laughs> these were not public um, conversations that I was having with people. These were not, this was private study uh, because again, like we said a minute ago, uh, churches of, of that, variety were not safe places to explore and ask questions and to land different ideas which would ultimately come to a head in 2011 when i got fired but you know i assume we'll get to that part of the story here in a minute i'll pause because if you if you guys don't stop me i'm a preacher at heart i will just <laughs> give me, I'll, i will just monologue 15 minutes at a time and forget that you guys are even here <laughs> no, 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 it's okay, Kelly. What do you got, Kelly? One of the things you were just saying about belief uh, was something um, just this last weekend, I was in a um, very Baptist heavy environment, uh, but there's a family Thanksgiving. That actually okay. I was like, you chose to be in, there. Okay. Yeah, in, a, in a Baptist church, like our, our family's so big that we actually, you know, took over the fellowship hall of the church on a Saturday too. Mm. Um, there was also baptism. Which was, mm. which was actually a baptism cool. and Baptist Wonderful. church. How fitting that yeah. they would all go there. Um, yeah. But mm. but that's it. That's a different story. But uh, did you have fruit punch afterwards? Um, I think we had diet cokes. Diet cokes. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> you know, pretty salty. Uh, um, the next day, I went to um, I went to Sunday school and church there before I headed back. And one of the things that came up in the Sunday school class was grace versus works. The whole mm. idea of, you know, salvation by grace. And the, you know, the end point was, you know, you just have to believe and then you're saved by grace. And my question is, 
if you're the one doing the believing, is that works? Like, does that actually put the work of grace back in your own? It's still an act of, it's still an effort. It's still not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't do it, then you haven't done the act that you needed to do to accept grace. So I know it's kind of a semantic thing, but it was Mm -hmm. just something not at all no i don't think it is i agree go ahead colby i I was just gonna say the 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 baptist and and anyone who's sort of on that side of of the five point tulip of calvinism they don't push the grace envelope far enough they take it all the way up to that like they they will lean on grace as this beautiful important thing but they just don't push it far enough because really grace is no you don't have to do anything you literally don't have to do anything that's what grace is nothing to to your point to expect that someone still has to have a confession of faith or still has to mentally acquiesce to some sort of doctrinal statement is yeah you're still saying you got to do a thing you got to do a thing to earn grace once you put earn in front of grace you have eliminated the concept of grace altogether amen brother i will say that i uh again that's because that's what happened to me I specifically say it was prevenient grace um, because I didn't ask for it, had no idea, and boom, it dropped on me and put me on the path that I'm on now. It's as simple as that. I love that. Yeah, prevenient grace. Yeah. yeah. So my one of my spiritual directors, awesome, you know, he's a great theologian. He introduced me to that concept that the point is, is that the source is working in us all along because we are all in that. It's not, there never is an other. I simply wasn't aware. And then when the moment that it presented itself, I became conscious of it through you know, like, there it is, man. And of course I was like, Oh, wow. You know, wow. How did that happen? Now years on, I've thought about it. I was like, no, it was going on all along and no, I didn't ask for it. Boom. There it was. So, yeah. Yeah. Can I say one more thing about that? Okay. Although I envisioned a scenario where you're like, no, I'd rather you not say anything more about that. Let's move on. That would have been funny. Okay. Save that for next time. No, we've we've heard enough. Let's, let's uh, Marvin. Can you cut the feed? We've heard enough. Um, okay. So one of the one of my favorite takeaways, uh, and this struck me a couple of years ago when I was preparing a sermon and using what, what we call the prodigal son story, right? Luke chapter fifteen. Don't know that that's the best name for it. I think a lot of the the subtitles in our Bibles need to be refreshed and and updated. But anyway, that's a different story. So the prodigal son, if you recall, you you've got a dad who's got two sons and 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 the younger one says, I want my inheritance. I was basically saying, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead right now so that I could have my share of the family estate. And then he goes off and sort of squanders it all um, and eventually runs out of money. And then fun fact, the 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 text, the text actually has this way of saying that the the son came back to himself. Like he, he returned, you might say, to an awareness of who he truly was as kind of another way to like a more esoteric way to say it. But he, when he came to himself, he realized, wow, I would be better off like as a servant in my dad's house because at least then my belly would be full. Right. And so he has this whole plan. You know, the story has this whole plan to come back and, and grovel at his dad's feet. He's got this whole speech prepared of how he's wronged his dad and he re- is repentant and, and begs to be taken back into the family. And of course, as you know, the father sees the son from a long way off, runs to him, throws his arms around him, kisses him, interrupts the whole speech. Like, I don't care what you have to say. You're home. That's amazing. You're here. Finally, you, you've like, you have understood where home is for you. And this is where you belong. Come, let's have a party. And they throw a party for him. And then, as you know, the older son doesn't show up to the party. He's He's bitter. He's resentful. He's, he's frustrated that he was the one who did everything right. 
He did everything right. He didn't squander his inheritance. He didn't run off and neglect family responsibilities. No, he stayed home and he did everything right. And yet his younger brother's being celebrated like this. And so the father comes and looks for him and like, wow, aren't you at the party? And then you, you get a glimpse of the older son's heart where he frustrates like, dad, I've done everything right. And I feel like you've never even given me so much as a goat to have a party with my friends. And the dad, which I think is a fascinating study here, the dad, the dad, dad, where's my goat? The the dad, I, I like to think, and you know, I, I try to be careful to not over extrapolate these stories of Jesus. Cause he, most of the time he was trying to make a pretty simple point, but I like to think you could imagine the dad in that moment, his heart sinking a bit, realizing that maybe he had failed his son in, 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 in this moment, in this moment, because he had to then say to his son, Bud, everything, everything I have has always been yours. And you can almost hear in that, like, part of how, how have you not understood that? But I think the dad also has a responsibility to be like, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't show you that well enough. Like, you don't, you don't have to ask. Everything I have is always yours. Anyway, so he says this, everything I have has always been yours. And the point I'm making here, and this goes back to the idea of grace, is what I realized is that both of these sons have a, have connected the idea of deserving with their father's love. The younger son thought he didn't deserve his father's love. The older son thought he did deserve his father's love. And what both of them had to realize is that when it comes to love, <laughs> deserving has nothing to do with it, nothing to do with it. And this goes back to the point of grace where like, if you think you've got to do something to earn it, if you think you, if you think you're so wretched that you don't deserve God's love, or if you think you've done everything right, and of course God loves me, again, you are missing the point of grace altogether. Like the love of God is always yours all the time. You can't screw it up. You can't run away from it. You can't get more of it. It's always there, not because you deserve it, but just because you are a beloved child of God, simply by the fact that you are alive. That's some good news right there. Amen. It is good news. It does always bring the question of like, you know, it always goes to like, well, what about the most evil person in the world? Are they love? You know, and then there's, um, I've, yes, I've heard entire are. sermons about that, about yeah. how that, that person may go through some kind of penitential fire to be able to be worthy Maybe. of love. And, you know, and I don't know. I don't know what the answers are, but I know that. We've seen enough superhero movies now at this point, Kelly, to know how villains become villains. Like Hollywood has pulled back the curtain to show us the origin stories of these. Like people don't, they don't just get born villains. It just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't it happen. Yeah. It's all, own... it's all psychology. It's all, it's so much, so much it's parents, like bad parenting or. Yeah. Yeah. Bad yeah. Economics like, or... This is not to excuse the, the harm and suffering that individuals can cause to one another, but certainly we can find in our hearts compassion for man. If, if I was them, I would be them. Well, that's what, what you get I, in, um, in undergrad, I was, I studied theater. And one of the things um, that I learned was when you play a villain, a villain never sees themselves as a villain. The villain is yeah. the hero of their own story. They yeah. just happen to be pursuing different, <laughs> different true. goals than everyone else. They may have a different value system or framework, but they are, yeah. they are the hero of their story. That's correct. Wow. I love our conversation so far. This is great. Um, wow. So 
I have to ask you, you are a het cis male, father of four. Um, where did the, the queer component come in uh, and start thinking about, you know, the, um, as you said, auditing your beliefs and uh, specifically the, um, the uh, passages that are used to clobber uh, queer folks? How did that happen? Yeah, yeah great question. So I mentioned a moment ago when I was using the metaphor of the Jenga tower that some of these pieces, uh, you know, I'd pull out and I would not know what to do with them right away. And I kind of set them over on the, on the side, like, I, I'm going to have to revisit you at some point. And that happened for me with the topic of uh, sexuality and, uh, you know, same sex relationships and all that. Um, mm -hmm. Shortly after college, when I was in the process of, of getting my being licensed to become a minister in the de the denomination, which at that time I was working for a church in the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. And so I had to go through a process of, you know, uh, answering questions and essays and eventually an interview to be stamped by the denomination that, yes, you are. Uh, oh, that that? Hey, Barry. For a second. <laughs> Hey, how are you guys? <laughs> I'm great. So Barry, this is Colby. Colby, this is Barry. <laughs> hey, Barry. <laughs> so I was thinking Barry will probably be popping on anytime. So um, Barry Taylor is an awesome old friend of Kelly and mine from way back when with Hatchery there in sunny California. And then, uh, oh my God, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Maria. And then Barry is now in uh, lovely Dublin and is joining us for what's going to be another interview and i thought well if they if this is going to be a crazy mashup do we just keep the episode going and we'll just like let it just to be like the four of us That's no okay. you, i you actually know. crashed it myself yeah everybody's late, crashing so, the show so yeah. <laughs> this is definitely a it's like a moliere play where like people just keep popping in and out <laughs> No, so Barry, you, you were right on time because you were supposed to be, you know, get in on a couple of minutes earlier to make sure you got uh, dialed in. So we were just talking with Colby. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. I love it. Um, oh, my God. This is great. So. Yeah, I don't. Oh, you were in London. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, why? Oh, you know where I got the Dublin thing? Uh, it's because of your work uh, with the yeah the university. So. It's good to see you, my friend. I look forward to our conversation and catching up with you. So, <laughs> all right, thank you, Barry. All right, so um, where were we? Oh, you were talking about uh, yes, Colby. You were talking about um, the Jenga, the the one about queer folk. Yeah, that queer block. All right, so I pull out. <laughs> so I'm auditing. So so when they got uh, triggered or kicked off for me was when I was studying to get licensed in the CMA and I'm reading one afternoon, my lunch break, I'm walking through the church lobby and I'm reading the policies and procedures manual for how they function as a denomination. And I remember reading, uh, this, this section, this sentence that said something to the effect of practicing homosexuals cannot be members of the church. And my first, my, yeah, my first question was, well, what if they're not practicing anymore? What if they're like really good at it? <laughs> yeah, pro wow. professional homosexuals. Are always <laughs> they're, not they're professionals. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm sure that's not what they meant. So my second question, <laughs> my, 
The second question was, and keep in mind at the time, my theology was pretty well rooted in evangelical Christianity. So I had the right answers, but my, my mind was, so my mind was like, okay, I get it. You know, gay people are sinners and that's not God's best, but we're saying wow. they can't be members of a church. Like there's something in that, that in my heart and my gut space didn't sit right with me. And then I kept reading and there was all these limitations on like where they couldn't serve and, and you know, you can do this, but you can't do that. You know, this sort of second class citizen, you can stand at the door and greet like you're working at Walmart, but do not think you'll ever get to work with our children sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and that was for me, this first moment of recognizing this massive tension between my head and my heart. My head was rooted in a theological idea, but my heart suddenly couldn't accept that this was the outcome. Like that this is how we have to treat people as a result of it. Uh, I didn't do much with that tension at the moment. I, like I said, I just kind of set that block aside. I'm like, okay, there's that one day I'm gonna have to come back to that because that doesn't sit right with me. And I, I, I got licensed through the denomination kind of by the skin of my teeth because I, they were picking up on some of my uh, lack of certainty on some of these questions, but I got, got licensed, ended up moving to Arizona, got a job there. And as I said earlier, kept auditing other beliefs. And finally, it was about 2009, 2010. I don't even remember necessarily how or when it happened, but at some point I, I got to a point where I realized, okay, I've lived with this tension long enough. I've been auditing these other beliefs. It's time that I go back and visit this one. And for me, really it was a pursuit of integrity. If I was going to say that I believe a thing, then I, then I darn well better like know what I believe and why be able to back it up. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they make this shift towards becoming affirming in their theology, a lot of it is, is catalyzed by someone in their life that comes out as gay and forces them to confront their own beliefs or they, they themselves are finally starting to, like you said earlier with the prodigal son, they, they come home to themselves like, wait a minute, I can't deny this any longer. So now I got to figure out how to align my head and my heart. But at the time I didn't really know, I didn't have any relationships with gay people. It wasn't, I wasn't out there trying to figure out how can I still love my cousin, Billy, right? It was just, man, there's, there's, I got to figure this out to, to pursue, mm -hmm. to be a man of integrity. I got to figure this out. And so I set about to study what I came, what I learned are, used to be called and are sometimes called the clobber passages. Mm -hmm. And these are the six verses in the Bible that historically have been misused to justify discrimination against those who identify as LGBTQ. And I, what's fun about this for me, guys, is that I used all of my evangelical training. <laughs> they taught me well how to exegete a passage, how to put it in its historical and cultural context, how to, how to situate it within the larger narrative of the Bible. Like I'm using all of these evangelical tools to, to really dive into these six verses. And, I, and out of the, the course of that study, um, where I landed was, wow, we have gotten these verses wrong. We have as a result of poor translations as a result of ignoring context as a result of cultural bias all of these things these the bible does not say what we have always thought or been told that it says and so i was so my head i didn't i didn't know by the way when my head and heart were out of alignment i didn't know going into my study how which one was going to like bring the other one along <laughs> i'm like maybe i'll come out in my theology what I've always thought is right. And I just got to figure out how to force my heart into it, or maybe, and this is how it turned out. Um, the, the, the theology of my gut is the one that actually 
um, is going to be the one that invites my head to reconsider. And that's, that's what happened. So, um, changed my theology became what we now call an affirming Christian again, kept it to myself because the context I was in wasn't a a place where I could openly talk about that. Mm -hmm. But then fast forward a year, September, 2011, Obama repeals, don't ask, don't tell the military ban against open gays and lesbians serving. And I put on my Facebook, a link to an article that announced it with six words. I said, I'm glad this day finally came for me. I thought I was just saying, Hey, this discriminatory practice is over. Isn't that great? But really what I didn't realize I was doing is I was kind of dog whistling to my conservative evangelical church. Hey, I don't believe the same thing as y'all anymore. (laughs) So, uh, and they sniffed it out right away and they're like, Oh, Colby's now part of the gay agenda. Oh, which I'm still waiting for my copy of Mark. I don't know if you can look into that. I um, will. I will make sure you get a copy of that because, you know, as it, you can only get it from uh, one of us, a member of the tribe, but, you know, you have to protect right. it once you get it. Right. You understand okay. that? I just, okay. I just feel like I've been out here allying for you for a dozen years. And I still haven't yeah, seen it. I think it's about time. Okay. It's, it keeps, I want to make sure I do this right. I have to consult with a couple of folks, but, you know, I'll, I'll say I'll put in a good word for you. How about that? Thanks. So it's one of that. the agenda items is brunch. <laughs> of course, brunch. Yeah. And, yeah, that <laughs> and ends with that. They're like hobbits. They have second brunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, anyway, so that event led to me getting fired five days later after wow. Facebook post. That uh, was quick. My church. It was real quick. The board meeting was called, brought me in, in inquisition style and made me sort of answer for myself, for the questions of, of the Bible and sexuality and same-sex marriage. And that was when I came out of the theological closet and said, yeah, I don't I'm think in. the Bible or God is against gay people. And I would be all in favor of same-sex marriage. And they said, Hey, how about you not come in on Sunday? <laughs> we'll, we'll fill your spot for you. And then Tuesday morning, they handed me my letter of termination effective immediately. Wow. And for any of our listeners who want to, um, I, I recommend, um, reading the book because it really, I mean, you're giving like the, the Cliff's Notes version of it, but it really plays out like a courtroom drama in the book. It's, it's, it's kind of, Ooh, big, so, right. um, so yeah, so I recommend that for somebody to see like step-by-step step the kind of the politics that goes on behind, um, behind the pulpit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As you're, uh, summarily dismissed from that, uh, that's incredible. Okay. So Colby, I just love the fact that, you know, having you, I can't even call you an ally. It's more than that. You're just showing your, who you are you know, being one with us as a, you know, a, a fellow children of our source of God. And you reconcile to that and you just put yourself out there. And in fact, even more so that you said you didn't have your cousin, Billy or anything else. You just simply like, you felt tension between your head and heart and you had to reconcile. And so that's what's brought us to us. So with that, though, we have ran out of time of this episode and we have got so much more to talk with you. So Colby, uh, Martin, um, guys, check him out. Uh, his website is uh, Colby Martin, um, Mr. Colby Martin dot com. I'm only I'm only going to correct you so that it's right. Okay, uh, Colby Martin online dot com. Thank you. Okay, so you can clean that up for me, will you, Marvin? Thank you. Yeah. So, no, keep it, Marvin. Keep it. I want the <laughs> I want the rest of the show. That's right. <laughs> I love it. He's working on it. Yeah, I thought you were going to give my my Enneagram three here. <laughs> so, ColbyMartinOnline.com, where you can find Unclobber. Uh, and in our next episode, Colby's going to be coming back, and we're going to talk about his other book uh, that he did. It's an audio book uh, called. The shift. There you are, the shift. 
and we're going to talk about his uh digital pastor work he does uh also your spiritual coach you, you, you just you have so much going on so folks thank you very much for listening to this episode we will uh get to you and finish up this conversation with colby uh, and look forward to part two of this thank you for your time colby thanks colby Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Love Live, co-hosted by Mark Dilcom and Kelly Wilson. All rights reserved. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and other popular podcast platforms. Go to RadicalLoveLive.com to learn more about us, watch recordings of our live events, and listen to our podcast. We also invite you to check out what Kelly and Mark are doing by going to our websites. Find Kelly at kellywilson.com and Mark at markdilcom.com. This is Radical Love Live, where we explore faith outside the boxes.